please turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. I'll be reading verses 15 through 33. You can also follow along on page 9 of your bulletin. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his wife, his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, uh, we looked at the purpose of marriage. And the purpose of marriage, we said, was to enable one another, to enable each other to become better image bearers of God, to advocate for the other person's future radiance and future glory, future beauty, future uh, just over the radiance of the church, the radiance of their spouse. And we said that there are two ways to do this that are found in verses 25 to 30, which is the latter end that we've been focusing on over the last several weeks in this new series on marriage. We said there are two ways that we can do this. One, by cherishing each other. Paul says, husbands, love your wives. And secondly, to cleanse each other. We see words and phrases like make her holy, cleanse her, wash her, uh, with the word presenting her uh, as radiant, holiness, blamelessness. In other words, we talked about this last week, by addressing sin patterns in one another's life. That's a huge, I mean, that is a big application. Single friends, this is so important because even though you're not married, you need to cultivate healthy relational patterns, healthy relational rhythms by addressing sin patterns that you are you have front row seats to in the life of your friends, especially with people whom you're able to let your hair down. Now, one of the biggest issues in our modern generation, whether you're single or married, is that we often, in our modern generation, we tend to, in our passive aggressiveness, in our fear, desire for approval and acceptance, we enable one another's sin patterns a lot more than trying to uh, promote spiritual maturity and growth. We enable each other's sin patterns, and we often even participate in them uh, when we should be enabling holiness and participating in that. 
Now, today, it's a, it's a little bit of a complex, at least I think it was complex. We're going to focus on one verse today. But we have to see the context, so we're going to look at the context of that verse and its meaning and its application. And then through that, we're going to see three things. Our underlying need, our biggest barrier, and our greatest power. Our need, the barriers, and the power. First, we're going to look at the underlying need. Here's the verse. It's verse 21. Verse 21, the Apostle Paul says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, if you look carefully at this text in verse 21, verse 21 sits right between this discourse on marriage that Paul has been talking about and just incredibly kind of lays out, and we've been focusing on that for the last several weeks. It sits in between that passage, which is the end point, and then we have what's prior to that, which is his teaching on what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Paul basically says that a person who's filled with the Spirit has certain characteristics, certain qualities, and that last characteristic is mentioned, that's mentioned is found in verse 21. And so a person who's filled with the Spirit, Paul's really talking about a Christian. If you're a Christian, you are filled with the Spirit. A person who's filled with the Spirit, they, uh, they demonstrate character qualities that are common across the board. Verses 15 to 17, there's wisdom. Be very careful then. How you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Make the most of every opportunity. Don't be foolish. Understand the Lord's will. He's talking about wisdom. Verse 18, there's self-control. Do not get drunk on wine. Verse 19, there's joy. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And he says, make music in your heart. In other words, you're going to praise God on the outside because there's music going on on the inside in your life. Verse 20, there's gratitude. There's gratitude. You're always giving thanks to God the Father. And he specifically says, God the Father, there's a sense of being God's child. And that bursts you into gratitude. It bursts you into thanksgiving. Verse 20, there's humility. He says, do all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it's for the glory of God, for his glory, not for your own glory. You can't have that, any of these things, if you don't have a personal relationship with God, if you're not filled with the Spirit. And there's more, but then he ends in verse 21. This is the last one he says, on top of all that, you're going to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, most scholars on Ephesians, on this book, they're going to say that it's very obvious that what Paul's doing is he's smoothly transitioning. He's smoothly moving from the principle of being filled with the Spirit to now the outworkings of what that looks like in all of our relationships and our everyday life. He's talking about a principle now moving towards application of being filled with the Spirit from verse 21 right into a series of examples. Verses 22 to 33, he's talking about marriage between a wife and her husband. And then it goes into family, between your child, a child and his parent, and then essentially in the workplace, he talks about slaves and their masters. Of course, we're not talking about the kind of slavery that we think about in our crazy history in this country. It's a very different type of slavery. It was almost like a, a servitude that, 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 was a, that's a, that was like a workplace environment where you can buy your way out of debt. All these applications of the principle of, are, are, the, are part of the principle of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, if you're going to have a marriage that is wise and self-controlled, if you're going to have a marriage that's characterized by joy 
and gratitude. If you're going to have a marriage where there's a fullness of humility, then the gospel, your reverence for Christ, it enables you, it gives you like a Holy Spirit endowed wisdom. It gives you a Holy Spirit endowed ability to genuinely serve and care for your spouse as well as just for other people in general ahead of your own needs. And, and I mean, look around. We need this today. Scholars are going to tell you that in our modern generation, it's all about the self. It's all about individuality. With examples like social media, marketing technologies today, I mean, there's, like, we talk about precision targeting and, and personalization in every dimension of life, in every walk of life. The world is honing in on the individual. And it begins at a very early stage. Today, we tend to, I mean, parents, you understand this, we, you're, we're part of this generation, we tend to coddle our children because we're moving away from that latchkey generation where we were kind of left alone to kind of fend for ourselves. Now we, so we, we said, we're not going to be like that. So we coddle our children. And, and we're telling them very, very early on, unintentionally, I believe, that they are the center of the world, that you decide, what, what do you want to learn? How do you want to learn? You decide for yourselves. There's a renowned author and philosopher, Charles Taylor, in his, probably one of his seminal books. The man's written like over 35 books. But in one of his uh, most renowned books called The Secular Age, he says this. There's this mimetic, a mimetic view of the world. That means it's where you're told uh, that there's a given order, there's a given meaning and an understanding uh, of the world. And what we're called to do is to discover then that understanding and apply that understanding in our lives. That view, that mimetic point of view is actually fading in society. Instead, what we're moving towards is what we call poesis. That poetic view says everything that you see, it's not just given. It's not just structured. They're just building blocks. They're just raw materials that essentially you have to use to, to build and decide for yourself what meaning to derive from that. So don't worry about what your chromosomes say about you or about your gender. What do you think you are? They're just building blocks. They're just raw materials. Don't forget about, don't just think about, you know, your gender and, and, and look at that and just, and just hinge on that as, as a way of life, a structured way of thinking. Where do you believe your sexuality takes you? Who do you think you are? What do you think you are? And Charles Taylor, this philosopher, he, he wrote, again, more than 35 books. He himself is a secular philosopher, but he says ultimately that this movement of, is, of thinking is disastrous for our society. Why? Because the moment you say, let's get rid of our institutions, Let's get, of our, get rid of our authority. Let's get rid of our order and, and, and find happiness in how you define the world, the way you view the world, the way you define yourself. You're ignoring centuries of failure and suffering and heartache and loss in the name of or in the pursuit of self-discovery. Ultimate wisdom, you say. I want to discover my ultimate potential. I want to become more of myself. And yet, because you've ignored all the brokenness of history, you're going to end up alone, more broken, and yet still obstinate and unteachable, and as a result, more foolish, less of yourself. You see that? And the Apostle Paul says, think about this. Your marriage, your family, your workplace, that's pretty much your entire day. Minus your sleep, that's your day. Every day. And if you want to navigate it with wisdom, if you want to navigate it with self-control and joy and gratitude and humility, 
there's an underlying need to move away from yourself, to take yourself out of the centerpiece of the world and submit to one another. Place someone else at the center. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Christ has to be in the center, and then you submit to one another. Stop living for yourself, in other words. Start living for Christ and start living for others. That's the underlying need. Well, what's the biggest barrier in any marriage? What's the biggest barrier in any relationship? And we said this the last two weeks. It's our selfishness. It's our sinfulness. And it's powerful. It's so much powerful. It's so much so that the Apostle Paul says, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to even have a chance to be free. It's impossible for somebody who is not a Christian, who doesn't have the Spirit of God flooding his life every day of his life. I need thee every hour. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. The Apostle Paul assumes, as he's writing this, he's assuming a spirit-filled life. As he's moving into verses 22 and on, talking about marriage, he's assuming what it means now to be filled with the spirit. That's what, that was 15 to 21. That's verses 15 to 21. He's assuming that spirit-filled life, the Christian life, as he transitions there now into verse 22, into our marriages, and on and on. Verse 21 then becomes the foundation Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It becomes the foundation of every application in our lives for the rest of the passage. What he's saying is this, that our self-centeredness is the biggest enemy in our lives. That's the biggest problem in your marriage, your own self-centeredness. That's going to be your biggest barrier to the success of your marriage. What do I mean by that? If you think about it, Let's say today, I mean, it's a cloudy day, but let's say today the sun went away. It just one day just decided to quit. It goes away. It stops being the center of our planetary system here. What happens? In our world, everything falls apart. Everything falls out of orbit. In an instant, everything is just going to crash and implode. So take yourself out of the center of your own life. This is why it's so hard. It's a barrier. Take yourself out of the center of your world, of your life. In a sense, the Apostle Paul is saying, if you really want a happy marriage, everything in your life that you believed centered around you, it needs to fall out of orbit. In a sense, everything's got to crash. Everything's got to implode. Everything's got to just blow up. And if anything, it needs to be rebuilt and reoriented around your relationship with Jesus and your spouse. In other words, you are not the sun. In other words, you need God at the center of your life for a happy marriage, even if you're not a Christian, where some of us will say, well, I'm not a believer. I feel like I have a pretty happy marriage. If you have a happy marriage and you're not a Christian, that's just the sheer grace of God. It's not happening without God's help. You just don't realize it. You see that? God is helping you by grace. Now, when Paul says submit to one another, that word submit, it's a military word. And it's used in the Greek to talk about soldiers who are submitting to an officer. Why? Because when you join the ranks, when you're in the military, you're giving up your own identity. Even in the modern Marine Corps, by the way, the word corps, Marine Corps, it means body, you're put through a rigorous period of training. 
And the whole intent of that training, no matter how big you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter how wise you are, the whole intent of that training is to break you down, to erase your sense of individuality, and then raise you back up as a single unit, as a single team, as a body. So when you join the ranks, when you join the military, you're giving up your time, but essentially you're giving up your control. Control over your schedule, control over what you eat, control over when you eat, when you rest. You're giving up all your individual comforts, your weekends, your days, your nights. Everyone dresses the same. Everyone is trained to speak in unison. A guy asks a question, you answer all together. Why? You are acting as one. Why? It's for that sake of oneness. You're putting aside your own desires. You're putting aside your selfishness. Because you know that your selfishness will get you killed in battle. You won't survive. You can't survive. That promise that I will enter into oneness with you. Single friends, I mean, look at your friendships. You may not have oneness to the fullest extent, but you're practicing. That, that selfishness is still right there, and you are practicing either oneness or selfishness. You're oscillating back and forth, and you're trying to figure that out. That promise that I will enter into oneness with you, that I will sacrifice my rights, place your wellness ahead of my own, your advancement ahead of my own. I mean, it's not intuitive. It's not natural. And yet it's critical to marriage. It's foundational to marriage. It's foundational to your life in all of your relationships. And Paul's saying in the same way, your marriage will not survive. You will not, your marriage will not be able to make it unless you do that. Now, single friends, what does that mean for you? That means that you need to today be incredibly thoughtful, incredibly intentional about giving up your selfishness. Because for many single folks, think for a minute, when you think about, when you imagine the type of life that you're going to have when you're married, when you think about the type of person that you want to marry or that you dream of, it's always some idea, ideal that you've created, really in a sense, to feed your own desires, how they're going to look, how that person's going to satisfy you sexually, how pedigreed that person may be, so that you can show them off and, and be confident about who they are next to whoever, you can measure them up against anybody, how accomplished they are, how they're going to sustain a certain type of lifestyle, even deeper, how they're going to cure your sense of loneliness, give you a sense of worth, fulfill your dreams. Fulfill your idea of an ideal life, an ideal world. And if I can just have that person, then my parents will say, well done. Then my friends will say, wow, I'm impressed. Then I can say, I feel okay. The foundation of a successful marriage is not self-fulfillment. That's the key. The foundation of a successful marriage is self-denial, self-surrender. It's about giving up what you were to become something new, to become one. Now, married couples, you need to know something. As a pastor, counseling, uh, lots of people. In counseling, when I talk to people who are just really damaged by someone relationally. Maybe it's their spouse, maybe it's their parents, just some toxic relationship in their life. The first thing I think about is, 
like it's awful. You hear the experience and you unpack the experience and you say, well, that is awful. There's injustice, there's cruelty. These people are certainly victims, they've been oppressed. It's traumatic. But one of the things that, you know, I mean, it's part of training, but one of the things you're looking for, and I see it often, is because they've been so damaged, they're wounded, they've been so hurt, and they're reeling. And sometimes because to the degree that they've been damaged, they're reeling for a very, very long time. And in there, you're picking up distrust and cynicism and all these kind of things. You've kind of built this kind of, kind of alter, alternate world, and your, your worldview has kind of been shaped uh, based on the immensity of the problems of, and suffering that you've experienced. And, and maybe it's because of the isolation. What happens is they actually become, they actually become more self-centered, more self-absorbed. I mean, it's easy to understand. Your problems are so big and often you're so alone. You've let no one in and you've done it for so long. You, you either can't think for other people because you're hunkering down. You're just barely just trying to survive every day, just get through day by day. Or when you do think of other people, I mean, you're going to be abrasive, you're going to be controlling, you're going to be insensitive, and you're going to end up hurting other people around you. You're in so much pain and you're wounded. You're going to hurt other people around you. You're going to break other relationships around you. And really what you're saying is, but I'm saying this because I care. I'm saying this because I've experienced and it's because I care. But it's, it's not because you're doing it for them. It's not about them. It's actually about you and you're doing it for you. And they're usually unaware of what's happening around them. They're usually unaware, not self-aware of how selfish and self-centered they've become, self-absorbed they've become. And one of those big things, they're not self-aware. They usually don't listen. They rarely submit to one another. And certainly not out of reverence for Christ. You know what that means? You could be in the church hurting for a long time and you think you're helping people, but you're actually hurting them because you are still working out your stuff. And I don't want to denigrate that. It's a lot of stuff. It's awful. It's painful. But the thing is, it doesn't justify hurting other people. And what happens is you're actually dishonoring Christ in the name of Christ. But here's the problem, and this is the big thing. Today, even in the church, you know how we respond to that? Oh, he's damaged. Oh, she's just damaged. I don't want to add to that stress. I don't want to address that because then it's going to create more stress. It's going to make them even more depressed. So let's not challenge them right now. Just leave them alone. Just kind of grin and bear it. Let them heal. They're just hurting. They're just in pain. And we think we're doing them a service when you're actually doing the ultimate disservice. Because what you're saying is, and this is very much like we said, hey, parents, we're coddling our children in our generation today, what we're saying is let them decide on their terms what's good for them to hear. You see that? Let them decide when it's okay for us to address them. It's a lot like the failures of modern parenting and failures in a lot of our marriages because what that assumes is that what you're assuming there is that, well, their self-centeredness, it's just something that happened to them. It's not natural. Uh, it's the result of trauma. So that at some point, when the trauma heals, they'll snap out of it. But that's very simplistic. That's, it's a very complex thing that's going on there. And what you're doing is you're simplifying it, and it's very pragmatic. 
And if, by the way, there's no data or evidence in any type of scholarly journal that speaks to that, so it's not even scientific. It's philosophical. And now, because you're talking about the nature of a person, the root of a person, how they got to the way they became, you're actually crossing even the boundaries of philosophy into faith. And when you do that, look, a Christian, a Christian would say self-centeredness, it may be triggered and influenced and, and, and uh, sometimes accelerated by trauma because they're hurt, because they're in pain, there's injustice, and that stuff is so real, but it's because it's been there from the beginning. And so we need to address it gently. We need to address it kindly, lovingly, but with clarity so that they face that selfishness while they're going through it. Why is God present? Why is that person going through this and why is God present? How can, if he's in it, what is he doing there? There's an intentionality of God to not take that suffering away. Then what can I do as a friend to walk them kindly and gently and lovingly through this so they can face that selfishness, confront that selfishness before even more damage is done? Look, when you first get married, and apart from like an arranged marriage or apart from like a, some other edge case, what you're doing is you're committing to that person. You're committing to that person because in the heart what you're saying is that person is the most beautiful person that I've ever known in the world that I live in. But then what happens is in a few years after marriage, you really start to see how selfish they really are. And even worse, this is even worse, they start to tell you how selfish you are. And you're like, what? And here's the thing, when you fight with your spouse, when you're fighting with your spouse, you automatically assume, you automatically assume that that person is way more selfish than you. You see, when you look at that other person and when you see their sin, it's always so flat and clear. It's one-dimensional. You know, it's just straight edges, very simple. But when they call you out, you see yourself in three dimensions. Well, you see, I mean, there was a reason for that. I mean, look, you, didn't under, you don't understand my situation. Okay, look, look, my upbringing, my background, you just sit there and there's so many things that we say, you know, well, here's the reason why I did that. Here's the reason why I'm like that. You know what's happening? After a while, you start to get tired, both of you, year after year. And what you end up doing is you start to make subtle compromises. You know, don't go there and I won't go there. Don't address that, and I won't address this. You, you stop right there, and I'll stop. I understand. And what you're doing is you're setting up barriers. You're setting up barriers, compromises. By nature, it's a barrier. And over lots of times, so many barriers have been put up, there's no more freedom in the relationship anymore. There's no more joy in the relationship anymore. And you start to feel trapped because there's so many barriers you're just tiptoeing. What do you do? I mean, friends, you have to learn to communicate without fighting. You have to learn to communicate honestly without fighting, without yelling. What you can do is you can go to verse 21 and rather seeing yourself as the victim in any relationship, he's the problem, she's the problem. Own your sin. Own your selfishness. And treat that selfishness as more serious than that of your spouse or your friend. 
What you've got to tell yourself is, look, I'm committed to treating my own sin and my own selfishness as more urgently serious, regardless whether or not the other person sees their own sin. I'm going to treat that other person's hurts, that other person's needs as more important, regardless if they're willing to own even their part of it. And when both people are committed to doing that, friends, if both people are willing to do that, that marriage, that's when it starts to get really amazing. Even if one of the spouses starts to do that, both of them actually over time start to soften. What resource do you have to go there? Where's the power for this? Now, there's a conservative approach to marriage. There's a religious approach to marriage that says, you do your part, I do my part. You do your duty, I'll do my duty. You play your role, you are the wife, I will play my role as the husband. Wives submit, husbands lead. One side usually blames the other for not doing that and that becoming the problem in their marriage. But know this, if your selfishness is a problem, pushing your roles it's only going to strengthen that self-centeredness. It's only going to augment. It's only going to increase and accelerate that self-centeredness. You see that? You're going to take advantage of each other. You're going to try to rule and control each other. And you haven't submitted to each other. You see that? You want to, you skip to verse 22 and on out of your pride or out of your anger. You're kind of calling it out. You're invoking verse 22 and you haven't gone back to verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Of course, there's another approach. There's a liberal approach. That liberal approach, modern liberal approaches will tell you, again, it's much like modern parenting, right? And the failures of modern parenting, which says this, don't let anyone else, it's not your right to tell me. I don't care who you are. You don't have a right to tell me who I am. You don't have a right to give me a role. Roles? You define yourself. You're going to see my worth. Don't let anybody tell you how to live your life. You decide for yourself on your terms. You find yourself. That's the modern liberal approach. Now, uh, if you don't find yourself in marriage then, get out of the marriage. It's toxic. That's what we say these days, right? But see, that's only going to strengthen your self-centeredness. It's only going to strengthen your, it's only going to increase and augment and accelerate that self-centeredness too. You see that? A Christian is going to say this. On one hand, I'm going to take my mind off of myself. I'm going to take my life out of the center. Everything's going to crash. Oh, it's brutal. Paul says, I die to myself. I die every day. That's what he says. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I can't be the center. I'm a sinner. I cannot be the center. You see that? Because I'm a sinner. But all of my needs, the real needs, have been sufficiently met in Jesus I mean, if he's loved me enough to die for me, to die for my sins, something that I was completely helpless to cure on my own, then surely he will make good on his promises to make me holy and blameless and complete. So I don't have to keep fighting to prove myself with you. I don't have to sit there and keep battling you for control because what I'm really doing is I'm battling myself. I just want control over my own life. I'm battling God. You see that? And so I don't have to keep fighting to stay in the center. And yet, on the other hand, I will be more mindful of myself with respect to my selfishness, with respect to my sin. My selfishness is the biggest problem in the relationship. That's key because when you see that, what happens? On one hand, there's going to be some remorse. My gosh, this person is going to have to deal with me forever. But on the other hand, there's great gratitude. Why? 
because this person is going to have to deal with me forever. You see that? And they've been dealing with me for a very long time. You see that? And when you say, I must deal with my sin, I must deal with my selfishness, we think it's like our creed to deal with the other person's sin and their selfishness, and I'm in your life to get in there and, and, and excise that tumor. On one hand, we're called to cleanse each other, but not without doing it first in ourselves. We look at ourselves. When you do that, there's a sense of remorse, but then you know what happens? Because when you say, I need to deal with my sin, I need to deal with my selfishness first, I need to serve my spouse first, you know what happens? There's wisdom, and you start to demonstrate self-control, and that creates joy, and there's gratitude, and there's humility, It's fruit. You see that? Where do you get the power to do all this? You see, because Paul assumes this. If you are a Christian, you are filled with the Spirit, and being filled, it's going to spill out to how you talk to the other person, how you treat the other person, how you serve the other person. That's what makes verse 22 and on possible. Where do you get the power to do this? Verse 21, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence. For Christ. He's saying, there it is. That's the power. See, religious people, they're going to submit out of fear, duty, roles, responsibility. Secular people, irreligious people, they're going to say, well, don't ever submit. Make people submit to you. Don't ever be vulnerable. Make them vulnerable to you. But the Apostle Paul says, your reverence for Jesus Christ, your relationship with Jesus is going to give you the what and the why of relationships. What do I mean by that? We call that the imperative and the indicative. What is that? Submit, that's the imperative, it's the call, it's the challenge, it's the work that you do, it's your response, but response to what? The indicative, the why. Paul's saying, reflect with awe, reflect on the glory of Jesus, reflect on the weightiness of what Jesus has done for you to the point where it just blows your mind, it just completely explodes your heart with love when you think about the person of Jesus and the beauty of Jesus and what he did for you and how he lived for you, his submission for you. In the Gospel according to Mark, Jesus is being baptized, and what happens? As he's coming out of the water, the text, the Bible says that heaven tore open and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. Immediately after that baptism, so the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. The gospel according to Luke then says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, he was filled. He returned from the Jordan River, and he was led by the Spirit in the desert, suffering where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And each time he's tempted, Jesus is clinging to the word of God to battle temptation. There's wisdom. He's looking at the center of his life. He is placed outside of himself. The whole reason why he is on earth is he has sacrificed and surrendered himself and he's submitted to the Father and he's one with the Father and he's serving the Father and loving the Father and obeying the Father. And so what he's doing there is he's saying, yes, I'm submitted to you. I'm clinging to your word to battle any temptation because it's going to remind me of my relationship with you. There's wisdom. You see that? In other words, I mean, he's starving. You know he was starving for 40 days For those of you who are trying to diet like me, 
right? He's starving for 40 days. He hadn't eaten. And each time he's tempted, and you need to know, more so than it's about to get, Satan's trying to get Jesus to just commit a sin. That's not what he was doing. He was tempting Jesus. He was tempting Jesus to, the temptations were about self-fulfillment. They were about, you know, he was starving. Well, here's bread. Fill yourself. But he was filled with the Spirit. You see that? The temptation was to glorify yourself. All of this can be yours without having to suffer. Glorify yourself. He was tempting to pres- him to preserve himself. If you jump from here, God's going to send his angels and he, so that not a, not your heel won't even strike the ground. Preserve yourself. Save yourself. You don't have to suffer. Just listen to what I'm saying. He's trying to get Jesus, who has taken himself out of the center, to put himself in the center. You see that? To draw out his selfishness. But the problem is, at least for Satan, each time Jesus rejects it. Why? Because he is the most perfectly selfless person that ever lived. There is no selfishness in him. So Satan's trying to draw something out that wasn't there. He's constantly submitting himself to God. In fact, at the end, he says what? Do not put the Lord or God to the test. Constantly submitting to God. Constantly submitting to the Father and his will all the way to the cross. And on the cross, what do you see? On the cross, Jesus, he can either reject suffering so that he could advance. Reject suffering so that he could advance. That would be the greatest act of selfishness, just like Adam, just like Eve. Or he could swallow the suffering so that we will advance. Either he rejects the cross and pursues self-glory, or he rejects self-glory and pursues the cross. And so what does he tell his disciples? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You're thinking, oh, now he's going to really show himself. Oh, he does. He says, I'm going to be lifted up. Oh, yes, he's going to be lifted up, and we're going to be lifted up with him. And he's lifted up on the cross. The greatest act of selflessness You want to know my glory? Look to the cross, he says. Look at my death. I'm going to be lifted up. That is going to be my celebration. That is what I'm going to be known for. That is going to be my glory. And so on the cross, Jesus Christ, he became relationally distant from the Father. In other words, his son, the center of his world that he's been revolving around, that son went away, and so he's disoriented on the cross. Everything in his life is crashing down on him. And so the rocks are trembling. The holy temple curtain is tearing. The world around him is caving in. But inwardly he's caving in when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's crying out, why? Why did his world cave in? So that our world will be restored. Jesus Christ lost the Father. Why? So that we could be intimate with the Father. Jesus Christ lost the Father, the the Son of all sons at the center so that we could have, we could be centered in orbit around the Father. Jesus Christ died to himself, so much so that he literally died. Why? So that his bride, his church would thrive so that they would live. Jesus Christ gave up his own happiness, his own desires, that sense of what if, any sense of ambition in his life. For the sake of his bride, he gave it all up. And when you see Jesus Christ doing that for you, there's going to be joy. And there's going to be gratitude. Oh, it's going to humble you. 
And that humility will lead to wisdom and self-control. You know what's happening? You're filled with the Spirit. You see that? And that means there's power. There's power for you to set aside your own wounds and your own suffering and your own desires and what you think you deserve and your rights for the sake of your spouse. Like Jesus, you're going to say, either you die or I die, so I will die. I'm going to die so that you will live. I'm going to suffer so that you will thrive. I'm going to labor so that you can rest. I'm going to sacrifice so that you can be sustained. I'm going to surrender so that you can win. I'm going to lose so that you can gain. I will surrender my comforts, my rights, even my wounds so that you can heal. And I will do this for you. It will be my joy to see you have joy. My favorite book is Pride and Prejudice. Remember that movie, though? It wasn't a great movie, right? I don't blame you if you haven't seen it. You should see it. It's, a, it's still a pretty good movie, right? But there's a quote at the end. It's, it's a beautiful love story, a timeless love story. What does Darcy say? He only says it in the movie. What does he say near the end? Surely you must know it was all for you. It was all for you. Let's pray.